This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Small-scale school voucher programs in the United States are being studied again and again, and a few of these studies are looking at voucher impacts on students after they have graduated from high school and gone on to college and into the workforce. But hardly anyone is looking at school voucher programs in other countries. Now, a new study by Eric Bettinger and five colleagues, how six people get together and produce a paper is a little bit beyond me, but Eric and his five colleagues have looked at a large-scale voucher program operating in Colombia during the 1990s and have calculated the effect on everything from future earnings to teenage fertility rates to credit ratings. Can the United States learn from voucher experiments abroad? To discuss this question, I am pleased to have Eric Bettinger, Associate Professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Education with me on the Education Exchange. Eric, thanks for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me, Paul. I really appreciate it. Well, Eric, so your study of vouchers in Colombia has looked at a lot of stuff. And uh, we can get into the details, but straight off, what would you say are your three most important findings? Well, I think the the if I had to go through those three, the first one would be this higher earnings. Those students who won the voucher, they were better off in terms of their labor market outcomes. They had higher wages, more engagement in the labor market. The second one I'd put on there is really getting them into the middle class. Um, we track a lot of the credit reports, look at kind of what happens to them. We see them engaging, getting loans, trying to finance things. And the things that they're purchasing, cars, our uh, houses are the things that we associate with getting into the middle class. And probably the third one is just that the program pays for itself. There was an initial cost to the program, but as you just think about the taxes paid on that additional earning, eventually it comes back and pays for itself. Well, that's all, that's all incredibly interesting. Now, how many students were actually participating in the Columbia Voucher Program? Well, in, in this particular case, the overall program ran throughout the 90s, and it almost encompassed 125,000 students. Now, our analysis really focuses on a group in, who applied in 1995. They were entering high school in that year, and it's really focused on about 4,000 of those students, of which yeah, a little bit more than half of those had the actual voucher itself. Well, you know, that was a smart decision to focus in on, on 1995 because the program's up and running by that time. You're not looking at a program in its first year just getting started, making lots of mistakes. You're looking at a program that's now in full swing. But uh, exactly why did you pick that year, 1995? Well, one of the key things whenever you really want to do a great study in this space is, is you almost want to have that kind of nice randomized control trial uh, that you might get in medicine or some other discipline. And what was so wonderful about that year, there was a large large number of applicants, and they had so many applicants relative to the number they could hand out, they ran a lottery to determine who received them. And as we looked at the characteristics of the lottery, it was very clear that it was a well-run, well-balanced lottery. There had been no cheating. Uh, we looked at some other cities in Colombia, and you know, Colombia in the 1990s had a reputation of having a little bit of corruption, and there certainly was one city in particular where um, all of the applicants from that school magically won the lottery, um, which you know, had a, had a basically a 0% chance of that outcome happening. So 
the, this particular cohort that we focused on was a group of individuals that have participated in a lottery that was fair. We can use that kind of randomization to help us as we start to think about doing the type of randomized control trial you'd see in other disciplines. Well, is this just in Bogota or is this more general? Just in Bogota. So this was only Bogota. There was, a, uh, there was actually other lotteries that were held in Bogota. But one of the other things that happens in so many of these cases, uh, the records just aren't kept well. And so over time, those records just disappeared from cabinets. They were thrown out and not needed. And so it was hard for us to recover any of the other lotteries in some of the earlier years. Well, you did gather a lot of information. How did you get all that information from so many different sources? So this is uh, one of those projects where when you look at the end of it, it just looks like uh, a quilt that's just been, you know, had 12 different people with 12 different visions of, you know, how to get there. Uh, we'd started it by just looking at the administrative records uh, that had been provided to us by one of the cl- our collaborators in Colombia. And we wound up in the early years of our evaluations doing some surveys actually in the field, literally going from place to place. I was down in Bogota one time, and I remember trying to go down this road and having the police literally block us and tell us that it was a bad time. Uh, FARC was still active, and so it wasn't exactly the, the best of times. Um, Over time, Colombia is actually one of the countries in South America that has really improved the quality of their data collection and really has increased the scale of it and the scale, the scope, as well as uh, tried to make that accessible in ways that uh, really kind of keep the privacy of the data but really allow researchers to examine it. And so this is a, a group that this particular study is focused on about five different data sets. Uh, one about college entrance, one about college careers, one about earnings, one's about credit. And all of these we've been able to pull together in a way that doesn't allow us to know the identities of the particular individuals, but allows us to really do analysis on it. But the, you do have the social security numbers or some number like that that allows you to go to all these different data sets. Ex- exactly. Columbia's changed it over time. So, but yeah, there's a, a little bit of complexity there. And part of our co-authors, uh, a couple of, you know, you, you asked how do you do a paper with five people. I, I think we actually had our first draft of this paper almost four years ago. And when you have five cooks in the kitchen, uh, what comes out of the kitchen takes a while to get out of there. But a couple of them are affiliated with the uh, Colombian Central Bank. And so they've actually been able to handle a lot of those confidentiality and the matching that happens through, you know, kind of an equivalent of a social security number. So that's what uh, makes this uh, all possible. You have an international research team that uh, brings a lot of different skills and uh, talents together. To Absolutely. I, and, and all of us have done work in Colombia in the past. Um, all of us um, have enough Spanish uh, to where we can really kind of help negotiate some of those relationships as we need to gather additional data. And and what we hope we have here is, in some sense, the universe of data that's available in Colombia on the students at this point in their lives. Now, the, I'm interested in the politics of, of, of how this program came into being. What, what was it that generated this uh, lottery-based uh, voucher intervention, which is not something you get every day? What happened in Colombia to produce this? Or- Colombia is a fascinating country when you look at kind of educational trajectories. In the 90s, there was an explosion of demand for secondary school. And there weren't enough slots. Um, And many of the schools in Columbia have a very different kind of uh, workflow than we'd imagine at a high school in the United States. Um, You know, my kids' high school, you know, I drop them off at 
8 in the morning. I'd pick them up somewhere around 3 in the afternoon. In Columbia, you would drop your kids off at 8, you'd be done at 12, and you had to get them out of there at 12 because at 12.30, an entirely different high school used the same building and went from 12.30 to 4.30. And in many cases, they had another school coming in from 5 to 9 at night. And so one of the problems they had was they just had this overcrowding. And they were already had, with these four-hour days, um, these multiple sessions at the same uh, buildings. And so they decided that there was, once learning that there was excess capacity in the private sector, to really expand and use the vouchers as a means of tapping this excess capacity. Well, actually, that's not unlike... uh some situations in the United States, it's easier to set up a charter school in that, those parts of the country where people are moving into it. There's not enough schools. they got to open up schools anyhow. You can open them up more quickly if it's a charter school because you don't have to go through all of the same rules and regulations. Uh, so, yeah, this is, this is not unlike some of the situations you encounter in the United States. Is the program still there or, or has it been dropped? So this is one of those classic casualties where when, um, as early as 1998, when the government changed, the new incoming government saw this as one of the programs that the previous government had championed, and they had no desire to champion it. Now, part of the problem was nobody had been really doing an evaluation, and our first studies on this particular voucher program didn't actually get into the public sector until uh, 2001. We were starting to circulate. It was published in 2002, another study showing good effects in 2006, and now this study. And, you know, that's just too late. Um, the policymakers had, they had some evidence that this was working. Maybe they had might have had a greater desire to keep it around, but the evidence didn't emerge until much later. Um, yeah. yeah, so politics... Uh can kill a golden goose pretty pretty easily. So let's get to your findings, though. Uh, you know, one thing that I've noticed is that a lot of the benefits here are concentrated on those people who chose to go to a vocational school instead of an academic school. So tell me a little bit about the Columbia uh, educational system so I can get a better handle on the meaning of this. Well, so one of the things that happens with vocational programs um, – Let me step back and just say one of the things that happens in schools in general is schools change slowly. So if we have a a program that we believe works, it's hard for us to really um, come to that point in which we start to say, well, maybe the program's not the right program anymore. It's hard for us to say goodbye to programs that we like and enjoy. And so a lot of the public vocational schools really focus on uh, plumbing, like electrical, um, the types of things that are very kind of blue-collar jobs. And what happened in the kind of mid-1990s, the private vocational schools started realizing that the, the economy in Columbia was going to have a demand for people who could you know, do, use spreadsheets, even just at a basic level. Uh, who could do word processing, who could use computers. And so they started specializing a lot in these types of programs that were less um, kind of blue color, a little bit more kind of uh, lower level white color type jobs. And so as a result, when you look at these students who came to these vocational schools, they were receiving training 
that it was the perfect time for Colombian to receive because the the kinds of job opportunities that were available to them as a result of the growth in the um, Colombian economy. Uh, that's as distinct from the state sector, right? Then you have state-operated schools as well. Uh, what percentage of the students in secondary school are going to private schools and what percentage are going to state-operated schools? I might get this number wrong, but we're closer to 35 to 40% of the Colombian population are going to private schools. Very, very different uh, in terms of the size of the private sector. I sometimes get confused on the number. I do a lot of work in Brazil as well, and in Brazil it actually gets up closer to around 50% of students in those private schools. So 30 to 40% of the students are in uh, private secondary school, and these are more middle-class students who are doing the people who can afford to pay for it? So this was a means-tested program, and the way that Columbia does their benefits, they literally classify each neighborhood in a one through six, where six is the highest. And they only allowed people who lived in the poorest two classifications of communities to even apply for the voucher in the first place. So you know, for this population we're looking at, these are low-income individuals who are having to use private schools, who are having to... Um, these are not the private schools that are elite private schools in Columbia. Um, these are private schools that are thrown together by either um, a community or church organization just trying to do the best they can. Well, a little bit like the Catholic schools in the United States. They're not particularly elite institutions, but they nonetheless for many years provided most of the private education in the United States. I think that's a, a good analogy. Uh, so now you're saying that those vocational programs were particularly valuable. Why were the academic programs showing no special benefits for, if you got a voucher and you went to an academic program, nothing shows up in your data as, as uh, particularly valuable? So that's a good question. I don't know that I have a great answer for it. And one of the weaknesses whenever you do a good randomized control trial is you know what happened, but it's hard to know why it happened. And you, you, looking at the vocational schools, in part looking at the difference in curriculum, uh, helped us to kind of come up with this theory that this is certainly one of the things that might be playing. In terms of the academic schools, we haven't been able to figure it out. There are some effects in the academic schools, but they're just really not as strong. And we don't know exactly if that's just because the the students both in the who didn't receive the voucher and those students who went elsewhere, that they were getting similar training and so there wasn't that kind of contrast in the outcomes, that contrast in the types of experiences they were having. Whereas in the vocational schools, there was a dramatic change. So what you're saying is that the academic schools in the private sector may not have been that much different from the academic programs in the public sector in the state-operated sector. I wish I could have said that as eloquently as you did. Yes, that's exactly. And, uh, and in the vocational sector, there was a big difference that the private sector was adapting to the new economy more quickly, providing training in the jobs that were needed at this particular point in time instead of being buried in the past. I think that's right. Um, there's a couple other mechanisms that we think might be at play here. Uh, but the primary one is exactly that, that those vocational schools were a little more nimble uh, than the public schools. One of the other things that was interesting in this particular voucher program was one of the conditions for con keeping the voucher was that you did not repeat a grade. And grade repetition in Columbia is, is actually quite common. And one of the things we saw in the early years of the voucher was the biggest impact it was having was it was keeping the students moving through the system. 
Well, one of the things you had to do was to get a passing grade in order to keep the voucher. Now, I've often thought that we needed more incentives in our secondary educational system in the United States. Do you think this incentive was part of what was going on here? I Absolutely. I think that it played part as well in that particularly the students in vocational schools, if they lost that voucher, most of them wound up having to take a job as a teenager to help support their family. And by continuing in school and getting those subsidies, they were able to keep on moving through and make progress through the system. Um, for the academic students, we saw less of an impact on the likelihood that they had to go get a job if for some reason they had a failing grade. And so, so the ones in the, the vocational program are a little uh, are of lower income than the ones in the academic program, or or perhaps their family situation is a little bit different, where the expectation was if this doesn't work out, go get a job and start helping the family. And so when that's your alternative, pass your classes or go get a job. Clearly, the students decided to pass the classes and keep on moving through. But there was also a family contribution. If you go to a private school and you get the voucher, that doesn't pay for the whole thing. There's also going to be some skin in the game that the family has. That's right. Now, in the first years of the voucher program, it almost covered all of the fees. Uh, but as time went on, it, it, that eroded until it was about half of what the original intent so was. So in, in the group you're studying, it's probably they're putting in... About half of the tuition. Oh, half. Yeah. So, okay, so you, you said that is this program pays for itself. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, whenever somebody earns more money, we, they're going to be paying more taxes. And so what we did was we just tried to do a kind of a very simple calculation. We tried to figure out how much additional money are these people making over the course of their lifetime and how much more money are they paying in taxes. And then what we tried to do is uh, think about some of the additional expenses that happen here. For example, uh, the students going to school for longer, and the, the government certainly subsidized some of that, so there's some additional expenditure the government might incur. Uh, but when you add up all of those numbers over the course of that student's lifetime, you actually find that this program pays for itself, um, assuming that somehow there's no kind of spillovers that are negative. Um, this program actually does a remarkable job of uh, covering its initial costs just by increasing tax yeah, revenue Yeah, but maybe the they're road. just jumping ahead of other people in the queue, and they're really not adding to the total productivity of the economy. I mean, I think you're assuming there this increase in the total productivity of the economy as a result. Do you have any evidence that that's going on? I don't have... Well, we know that this is one of the big growth periods for the Colombian economy over this same period of time. Now, it, as you think about the 4,000 students that we're studying, these 4,000 students are such a small group relative to the larger economy that it's hard to imagine that somehow they're, they're bumping some students out and that it's a zero-sum game. They're certainly in this period of time is such rapid growth, both in the, num the demand for higher education as well as in the kind of economic opportunities that were before Colombians at the time. Um, these students just happen to kind of get there faster and may, perhaps moving themselves ahead in the queue, uh, but we don't have good evidence that somehow they're crowding out some students or not. Have I missed something in all these questions? It's a very rich study, and I may have missed something that's really important. Well, one thing uh, that I think is uh, really interesting in this one has to do with uh, teenage parent. 
one of the things we found was those students who won the voucher, because of that commitment to school or because of the quality of the schools or the religious nature, whatever it might be that was driving it, we didn't see an incidence of teen pregnancy happening at the same clip for the students who didn't have it. Now, over time, they had the same size families as the other kids. But what happened was the timing of those. Um, those kids who really didn't have that opportunity to attend these schools, they wound up having their children earlier in life, and that becomes expensive early, and they wound up having to enter the labor force earlier than they might have liked to. And so one of the potential explanations for this is it just kept those students, you know, didn't change what their ultimate family dynamics would look like, but it made it to where they timed those uh, those children and the, the arrival in those pregnancies at a time when they were ready financially to really support those children. And there's some evidence that parents are better parents if they have their children later in life. Exactly. And so I, it, you, when I told you, you know, that the program pays for itself, I'm not even reporting any benefits that might be accruing to them because of being able to raise their family in a situation where they have a little bit more comfort, a little bit more security, or the potential benefits that might have actually generated for those children. Now, I want to come back to the question I, I raised it right at the beginning, and that is, what are the lessons for the United States? Can the United States learn anything from Colombia? After all, Colombia's Average student performance on the PISA tests are about a full standard deviation below those of the United States. So is there anything in this story that can translate to the U.S. context? This is a hard one, and it's, it's, it's loaded in part because I think the, the Columbia Voucher Program has been much less uh, kind of a political discussion and hot potato as it's been in the United States context. I mean, I think one of the keys is that when you look at these low-income kids who if you had looked at them in 1995 when they applied, you would have thought these children have a real uphill battle to make a difference. And then you see that by changing the educational opportunities ahead of them, they actually were able to really improve their lot in life. It does make you hopeful that as we think about some of the disadvantaged students in the United States and try to think a little bit about how to improve their situation, that perhaps we have those same opportunities. Whether the school quality or the school construction are the same and would generate similar results, that I don't know. It's a little bit outside of the study itself. But I think that kind of hope that we get from seeing this improvement in these students, uh, from seeing these benefits that not just are short run, but are really long run, uh, you know, 20 years after the this initial interaction with the voucher, uh, is certainly encouraging to us. But I would also add that uh, you know, requiring students to uh, pass in order to keep the voucher, requiring uh, the family to contribute to the financing of their children's education, those are not often in the voucher programs in the United States. Uh, so that might be something else that might be added to the plate. Or our great inflation has made it to where those are just too easy to get. I, I, the one one fact that I always love to cite is in the initial study we did in Columbia back in 2002, there were three co-authors on that. All three of those co-authors, including myself, uh, immediately when we finished those projects, went on to do randomized controlled trials where we were examining the impacts of incentives in schools in terms of improving. So clearly all three of us had that in mind that that might have been one of the important mechanisms. Um, so, so I absolutely agree that the, the role of incentives is kind of underexplored in the U.S. context. Well, I've been speaking with Eric Bettinger. Uh, thank you, Eric, for joining me uh, today on the Education Exchange. I really appreciate the opportunity.
Eric Bentinger is the Associate Professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.